Hey, this is Carolyn Pearson, good friend and follower of Lindsay Hanson Park, who is doing amazing and important work with her year polygamy podcast. I learned to my horror that Lindsay does not even get the requisite 69 cents on the dollar of what her male counterparts in the world of Mormon podcasts get by way of contribution. Do you believe that? I quote now from the Salt Lake Tribune, God bless the Salt Lake Tribune. Women in Utah receive 69 cents for every dollar paid to men. Now, I'm not saying that Lindsay should get as much as men. After all, she is a mere woman. But come on, let's get her up to the 69 cent mark. I'm a subscriber for 10 bucks a month for the last year or so, and I urge you to do the same. Just jump on that donation button and hopefully that subscription button, and let's make a commitment to that great Lindsay whom I love. Okay, thanks. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage. Before we get started, I just want to apologize to my listeners. I know that I've been religious in putting out episodes each week on time, and you might have noticed that in the past few weeks it's been getting a little bit more sporadic. I am just trying to pace myself in a way that is, is healthy for um, myself, my emotional health, and my family. When I first started out this series, it was really fun and really exciting, and it was something that really enriched me because uh, I enjoyed it so much. But now that I've, in the last few months, things have gotten pretty serious, and I've gotten involved in some things that I had no idea were out there and that I just never saw myself getting involved in. Of course, I'm talking about cocaine. I'm kidding. I'm not into cocaine. But I am into some politics, some cultures uh, with Mormon fundamentals that I never that I never saw before. I never saw myself being part of before. So I'm just kind of riding with it and seeing what I can do. But it has taken a toll. It's very serious stuff that is way beyond my pay grade. Um, people have reached out to me for help, and I... And I appreciate my fundamentalist listeners out there who listen to this and share this with their friends. And it's kind of, this podcast has kind of become a voice in the darkness for those people. And I'm glad to be part of that. But it has been a little bit overwhelming because I do have to say, I knew things were bad in some of these communities, but I had no idea. And I'm still learning how bad they are. And, you know, we've talked about the FLDS, for example, and how bad some of some of it is, but I just want to say this to you. It is the tip of the iceberg for what is going on right now today. As you're sitting listening to this, there are people suffering and there are some terrible things happening. So the only thing I want to encourage my listeners to do is please keep talking about this. Don't let this this subject die. Uh, it's really important that we spread the word, we spread awareness, we put pressure on uh, state, you know, government officials to not let these issues fall through the cracks. They're very, very important. So now let me tell you about my weekend. So 
when I was doing the research on the FLDS, I noticed there, that there was an actual FLDS historian. And I got really excited because I was, I'm really interested in how these groups keep their history. Of course, growing up LDS, we are taught family history is very important. We're given callings and church in regards to it. We take trips with our family. We're encouraged to write records. Um, my great grandfather came from Germany. He started the memory books. That was his legacy. And he brought 10,000 names from Germany over to, um, America. And so it's just a huge thing in my family. So to find out that other people, other, um, groups have historians was really exciting. This historian's name was Benjamin Bisline. And as I started to look up more about him, there's not a lot about him online. And that's a shame. If anyone can do Wikipedia pages, we need to create a Benjamin Bisline Wikipedia page pronto. But there's not a lot about him. And the more I found out, I realized he did, he wrote this history at a great risk to himself. Some of the things that he wrote about possibly implicated him in some of the crimes that were happening back when uh, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on in regards to federal law enforcement and things like that. But Ben did it anyway. He was brave and he wrote his story. And I was so excited that I knew that I had to interview him. I had to talk to him. I had to find out his process and why he did it. So uh, I asked my friend Sam Brower about it. Sam Brower, of course, is the private investigator for the FLDS who's going to be coming on this podcast. And Sam said, you got to get down there quick. Ben is in a care facility in Hurricane. He is suffering from the effects of diabetes and he's he's getting up along in age. Ben will turn 80 on April 21st of this year, 2015. So we knew that we had to get down there fast. And so my good friend, Barbara Jones Brown, who is a fantastic, incredible Mormon historian, and I were just, we've been strategizing for weeks now about how we could get down and talk to him because at the very least we wanted to to record his information somehow. Now Ben has written two books. The two books are uh, basically the history of the FLDS and I'm going to link to him so you can see it. His books are basically revisions of the same book. It's called The Polygamist, A History of Colorado City, Arizona by Benjamin G. Bisline. And we had that, we had that down, but we had to go talk to Ben. So through a series of many events, Barbara and I were able to go down this weekend and interview Ben, and we plan on going back and celebrating his birthday with him in April when we take a, a trip down south again. So I want to thank Barbara so much for all of her work in helping me do this. She's been instrumental in this, and thanks to Sam Brower, who also facilitated this. We couldn't have done this without you. When it comes to Ben, he has a fascinating story. Fascinating. And I'm so glad that I got to take the time to meet with him. And I have to say, he is a delightful person. He is brilliant, very bright, very clever, and he has lived through it all. He was there for the Short Creek Raid as a child. And he knows everybody. He knows everybody in the hierarchy. He went to the School of the Prophets in the FLDS. He was very much involved he married a Jessup, um, and we're going to talk about her in just a moment. But Ben's mother was Jenny Johnson Bisline, and if you notice her maiden name is Johnson. She was born in 1902, and she was the great-granddaughter of Mormon polygamous settler and Council of 50 member Benjamin 
Johnson. So she has this history of polygamy. Now, his mom, Jenny, is really interesting to me because she is in this generation of people who would have grown up in and around polygamous. But of course, when the LDS church is trying to distance themselves from it. So 1902, we haven't had the second manifesto yet. It comes out in 1904. Jenny is born into this family. She would have been living in and around polygamous. And they were up in Cache Valley. And they were, they were still, a lot of these people were still mainstream LDS. There was no FLDS at the time. You need to remember that. There was no FLDS at the time. There was just one church and there were polygamous and there were monogamous. And they were starting to encourage there to be more and more monogamous. So Jenny is born. She's always, like the other saints around her, sympathetic towards polygamous. Her and her husband, John Anthony Bisline, would eventually want to move down to what is now called Colorado City, but it was Short Creek at the time. So, you know, they they live in Providence. Um, they're raising their kids in the church. That They've baptized all of their children, and they really believe that the principle needs to be lived. They're starting to see that the LDS church really distance itself from polygamy, and that's troubling to them, especially considering their history. So they're troubled by this. They're living up in Cache Valley. For those who are not from Utah, Cache Valley is at the very top of the state, and Short Creek is in Arizona, so it's at the very bottom of Utah. So so Annie and John Anthony Bisline decide to move down to Colorado City. Now, of course, they have a son who is who is um, about to be baptized, baptizing age. Um, his name is Benjamin, and all of his brothers and sisters have been baptized into the LDS Church. But as a parent, sort of grapple with the truth of the LDS Church and their abandonment of polygamy, they decide they decide not to baptize Benjamin Bisline, and they start planning a move down south. I'm going to let Ben tell his story about moving down to Short Creek as a 9- and 10-year-old boy. In your book, you talk about being 10 years old when you moved to Colorado City. It was called Short Creek at the time. Tell us what that was like for you. Well, I loved it. I don't know how how else to explain it. It was (laughs) from Babylon to Zion for me. (laughs) Did you grow up FLDS? Were you born FLDS, or did you convert? Uh, you got to give me a minute to just kind of put things. My folks, when I, when it come time for me to be baptized at eight years old, I was the first one of their children that was baptized by the, I'm going to say the plagues, rather than the, than the regular LDS church. All the others above me were baptized regular LDS. So I never was on the LDS uh, membership rolls. Of the of the LDS. Why why did your parents convert to FLDS? Well, where to start? <laughs> where to start? Uh, I'll tell you what what turned to, made them decide to move to Shark Creek when they did was had a brother that was killed in the Marines World War Two. And my dad worshipped him, you know. He was just apple of my dad's eye. And, and when he was killed, my mother too, you know, it just kind of broke, broke their spirit. And, and at that point, then they decided to move to Short Creek because our, 
Our friends that lived in Millville over FLDS had already moved, had gone to Short Creek, and we were about the last ones in that Logan area that was that was still FL, FL, you know, Pligs. Yeah. I'm going to say Pligs. That's keep it straighter. Okay. And uh, the Jensen family, Ashley Jensen, he he moved to Salt Lake Sandy area. They bought a farm there in Sandy, and, and he was later killed in an auto accident. But that was after we had moved to Short Creek. So in '45, like January or something, was is when we moved. In '45, and it was right, you know, the war ended like in June or something of that year. So we moved down here just before the war ended. World War II, I'm talking right, about. Right, yeah. So you were 10 when you moved to Short Creek? Yeah, I, I was about 10. I, it was 45, I was born in 35, yeah. So I was, my birthday's in April, we moved in February, so I was, actually, I guess I was only nine. <laughs> so t- what was Short Creek like at that time? Man, it was. It was freedom. I mean, it was just open spaces, no paved roads, no electricity, no telephones. Uh, some of the houses had running water. The CCCs had come in in the 30s and put in the pipeline to their camp, and, and then any, any of the homes that was on that pipeline had running water. And other than that, we, we our water we got from the wells, windmills, bucket, you know, and I loved it. I don't know, just freedom in where we lived. We lived in Providence there at Cash Valley, and, and I was the, what do you call it? The, I, I, I can't think of the right word, but I was I was the one that was picked on because I was at a church. So so you grew up in Short Creek from the age of nine? Yeah, nine, ten, somewhere on there. And, and uh, you enjoyed your childhood. When did when did you start to see things that troubled you? Oh gosh, in the fifties. So you were around for the Short Creek Raid. Do you oh. want to talk about that for us? Well, I I don't know what the uh, I was right at Short Creek at the night that they came in. I was I had taken some folks down by had a you know over Middleton, what's called Middleton, yeah. down by St. George. We had a a little place down there, the plague did, and uh, I took up some women and stuff down there to kind of hide them out and stayed there. I was actually down there the night that they came in, and then I drove back out that next morning, and they had the roads blocked, and all the men were gathered up. I was, the, the men that were 18 to 21, they just left us alone. They just, we were just free, wide, and handsome. I mean, they, they didn't arrest us, they didn't. But it's with the juveniles. In those days, it was a juvenile until he was 21. And uh, so I just had I just had freedom of the I wanted to come here and there. I went to the different place of women, kids, you know, kind of. There was about four of us that, that was in that position to kind of look after. There was a couple of men that were in the Army that was home on leave, and they didn't bother them. And other than that, we just kind of took... Well, the, the Hilldale side, the Utah side, they never never bothered them. They never raided that side. It was only the Arizona side. And so we'd get up and go up to Hilldale. They call it Hilldale Home. That's where Fred Jessup lived. It was a kind of a hospital and whatever, where the deliver, babies were delivered. And all of us that 
that whose folks were gone went up there to eat breakfast and dinner and so on. Ben often mentions a woman named Annie, and Annie is his wife. And so we don't get the chronology confused. Let me just tell you a little bit about Annie. Annie's important because of her connections as well. When Ben's family moves down to Short Creek, his father would eventually pass away. His dad died in 1949, so they only lived in Short Creek a few years, about four years until his dad passed away. His mother, Jenny Johnson Bisline, would then marry Richard S. Jessup. Jessups, of course, are sort of this fundamentalist royalty, and Jenny would become the sixth wife of Richard Jessup. Richard already was married to Alveda Anderson, who was his first wife, Ida Young Johnson, who he married in 1928. Then there was Fern Judith Carlson Shapley and Lola Spencer Johnson and Artemisia Spencer Johnson. And of course, Richard would go on to have a lot of history there, but she marries him as as a plural wife, and, and Ben will talk about that a little bit more. You have to understand, and and there's still a similar setup, but just like the LDS Church, people live different in the 40s than they do now. The LDS Church looks a little different. It's the same thing with this church. So Ben, of course, moves into this plural home. He's living with a lot of the Jessups. Jenny Johnson Bisline would have this relationship with him, and she would help raise some of Richard's kids. Richard Jessup had children that all of a sudden become step brothers and sisters to Ben. One of one of Richard's kids is Merrill Jessup, who of course is a big FLDS name, and is the step stepbrother to Benjamin Bisline. Another sister to Merrill Jessup would be a girl named Annie Jessup. And Annie Jessup would grow up in the house. She's a few years younger than Ben, but she lived in the house and she would be Ben Bisline's stepsister. Let me let Ben talk about Annie. Can you tell us about meeting your wife? Well, she was just a little girl in Shark not when we moved down there. And she's a Jessup, so what is her family connection? Well, my my mother, when my dad died, and he wasn't very old. He was only in his 50s. And when he died, my mother wanted to live polygamy, so she married Richard Jessup as about fourth wife after my dad that died, and I, and we just kind of lived in the same big house down there, and Annie was just there. She, her mother was the first wife, and, and we were just like brothers and sisters, more or less, except that I, I was I was 10, and she was, what, 7 or something like that, just another little kid, but right away, there was a connection, just even though she was a little girl, of course, you know, boys and girls have. In those days, they wasn't against the boys and girls have girlfriend, boyfriend. It was just kind of normal situation. And, and uh, we lived right in the same house and everything. And, and when I got to fell in love with her, whatever you want to call it, well, we'd sit up till three or four in the morning sometimes, just there on the couch in the living room, and only everybody else gone to bed, just hugging, kissing, what boys and girls do. And, it was a lot of damn good fun. I mean, you know, we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything more than that. I mean, right. you know, we had good teaching, good bringings up. We respected each other, and uh, uh, I, I just fell in love with her. 
I don't know, from there. <laughs> so, so you never lived polygamy. No, um, why not? I guess I wasn't worthy. <laughs> well, I've got my philosophy now, later. See, I often wondered that too, because I was considered one of the faithful but good members. I, I worked on the project, I, whatever, and I, I never did. When I asked, before Richard Jessup, I asked him if I could marry your daughter, Annie. Or quarter, quarter, we call it. Because she was only 15 at the time. That's before the raid. You know, when I say the raid, you know what I'm talking about. Right. And, uh, and he says, I have no objections. You know, he was like my stepfather. He says, I have no objections. He says, I want to talk with uh, Uncle Roy. He was the priesthood leader, you know, the head. Yeah, yeah. And see, and see what he says first. And, uh, so, this is after they'd come back, and, uh, after the Phoenix thing, you know, after they'd won the case, and they'd just been turned loose. The folks were back home, and, and one morning he just, we, did, we just lived in the same house. And my, my, uh, my mother didn't come back as soon as, or she came back sooner than the, uh, the other family. Other families, so my mom was there, but uh, Annie's mom, yeah, she was there. Let's see, Annie was there. I don't know. I'm getting too deep, deep in stuff that don't even matter. No, that's okay. So you you didn't practice polygamy. Um, I, I, my dad or my father-in-law, Uncle Rich, Annie's dad. When I went and asked him if I could marry, if I could court Annie, that's how we how we worded it. Could I court her? He says, I have no objections at all. He says, I want you to make me a... I don't know if he said the word promise or what, but he said, I'm going to use the word promise. I want you to promise me that you will live plural marriage, and then I'll I'll consent. And of course, hell, yeah, you know, sure. More <laughs> the merrier, you know. But it never did come out. And, and later then, when, when Hammond got there and took over and things were changing, and they Pointed who to marry and all that. I went back to him and I said, "See, my, my friends were all getting married and pro wives and all that." And I went back to him and I says, "You made me promise you that I'd live pro married, and but we're told not to court now. We were the marriages are appointed. What do you want me to do?" And he says, "Well, the policy has changed. Don't don't court. You just wait until you're appointed." So that got me off the hook then so to speak. And I don't know if it was a relief or it was a relief, really was, because I didn't feel good about going out and trying to court another girl when I was married. I just didn't feel good about it. Yeah. How did Annie feel about it? She she uh, consented. She, I must tell, I, I, I don't want to embarrass her when she reads this later or something, but, so maybe I won't go into too much detail, but she just, she, she consented. To poor marriage, because she, her family, her dad had four wives at the time. So. And that's what righteous girls do, right? Right. And it was it was a situation that she didn't yearn for it, but she she did consent. So when did you you said in the fifties you started to notice things that troubled you? What were some of those things? Oh, I don't mind. I got to. 
1950s, so what happened in 1950, where the raid came in 55, right? I think it was 53 that raid. 53. Yeah. And so the the women and kids were all taken, and Annie, of course, was gone. She, her mother, they moved her to Winslow at first, and, and she was the only plague woman there. And she was just kind of alone in strange big world. Well, she was, she had grown up in Pikestaff. I mean, that's where she'd born in that area. The police ferry that, but, but uh, she finally, the social worker finally allowed her to, to move back to Snowflake, where there was a couple of other plig women, women living. And this was before, the, before, they, before they were released from what we call prison. <laughs> the, the women could be gone any time they wanted, but they had to, they couldn't take the children with them. They had to leave the children. They declared them over to the state and all that. But And did you have kids at the time? No, we weren't married at the time. Oh, okay. She was only 15 at the time of the raid. We were, it was after the after they came back from, the, from being taken and all that that this other happened when I went through her father and asked him if I could court her. And she was, by that time, she was 17, 18. She was 17. She was 17 when we got married, and I was 20. In those days, the, the men had to be 21 before they could declare majority. The women were declared majority at 18. So we both had to have our parents' consent. And we got married when she was 17 and I was 20. Where did you get married at? Well, we got the legal marriage in Fredonia at the Justice of the Peace. Uh, what was uh, his name? Judd? Judd's a Fredonia name, so it was probably Judd. <laughs> we just went to his house and, and Justice of the Peace. We had to get a marriage license. We had to go get the marriage license first. And I'm not sure how we got that. We might have got that through the mail. I don't remember. Because Sharkers were pretty isolated, you know. Yeah. The Arizona side. How did you get sealed? Well, after the the state marriage, after we got married by the state, and had the wedding cake or whatever, and the big party and all that, well, then Uncle Rich, he was one of the high priest apostles, you know. And uh, he he took us up into a separate room in the home. And, her, and my mother and her mother were there, and and, and maybe another one of the wives, maybe Aunt Fern or somebody. So it was pretty, pretty secret. It's not secret, but pretty secluded. What's the word? Everybody just wasn't married. It wasn't chosen. It was sacred. Yeah. yeah. And then he sealed us. And then that night was our first night together. Now, do the FLDS honeymoon? I mean, do you go off separately, or do you stay in the house? What is what is that like? <laughs> it's different. Different depends on the people. Depends on who. Now, like with us, see, we didn't even know we was going to get married that particular day until he came that morning and says, "Well, go get your dress clothes on. We're going to take you and get you married today." <laughs> oh wow! He, he had to go get permission from Uncle Roy. See, before he could do it, because Uncle Roy was the leader. Yeah. And then he, when he did, it was about. Maybe maybe a couple of weeks, he came back and we, he he told me back when I asked him if I could marry. He said I have no objections, but I want to speak speak with Uncle Roy first because he's the priesthood leader. And then a couple of weeks later, he came back and says, "Well, that's when he came back and says, well, get your dress clothes on. We're going to take you married today over the Fredonia, the Justice of the Peace.'" 
I think we got the marriage license the day that we got married. I think the Justice of the Peace was able to make out their marriage license. When they come and, well, we'd gone and talk and all that. And, you know, we knew we wanted to get married. We would ask for their consent. And it was just that morning, he comes and says, well, get your dress clothes on. We're going to get you married today. It was just that quick. And we didn't have any. And, and my mother was cooking for a fencing crew up near Allen, Utah. And, of course, I was I was the majority because I was, I was only eighteen, and then the, those days the men had to be twenty one. The the girl could was could was eighteen was her, but she was only seventeen. But her mother went, and of course Uncle Reese was there, her dad, and uh, so we had to drive up to Allen to the farm and pick up my mother, go back to Fredonia where the judge lived. Let's see, yeah, she, my mom got somewhat dressed up at the camp, and then we drove down and stopped at the judges and got married on the way back to Short Creek by this law. What was church like? How did you do church back in those days? Well, after the raid came, they they pretty much postponed any any public church. See? Uncle Fred that had his private Sunday school and different ones, Uncle Rich, and his dad, she, he had his private Sunday schools on Sunday. And it was that way. There wasn't any public meetings after the raid there for a while, quite a while, till, till Marion took over. When Marion Hammond took over, well, then they started having the public meetings again, and that wasn't until, what, 56, 57, more than that, later than that. So let's cut in for a minute and talk about Marion Hammond because it's important to understand when you contextualize what Ben is going to say. We've talked about Marion Hammond before. That name should be familiar to you. But we will be talking to some of the Centennial Park folks in a while and getting more of this history. But if you back up to when the Council of Friends was really taking off, we had Lawrence E. Woolley, who was sort of the first leader of this in the eighteen late 1880s, early 1890s. And then we had uh, J. Leslie Broadbent. When J. Leslie Broadbent dies, John Y. Barlow takes over the Council of Friends, and he is running it with Joseph Musser and Charles Zitting and, and some of these other guys. And it's said that, you know, Broadbent just feels really called to, he really wants to bring Leroy S. Johnson, Uncle Roy, as they call him, and Marion Hammond. They want to bring them and call them to be high priest apostles. Of course, jo- Joseph Musser says he has some problems with this because it's not a revelation. And there's some dispute whether Barlow actually had a revelation to call them or if he just strongly wanted them. And so both men are eventually voted into the council. And, you know, you got to remember that after the raid, the raid really disrupts the way that these people are living And it's important to note when we talk about further strategies for dealing with legislation concerning FLDS, if you criminalize polygamy, it doesn't stop polygamy, right? It just drives it further underground. So we have, we have this happen here at the Short Creek Raid. The Short Creek Raid, of course, brings national attention and it gets some of the leaders out of there. But really the people that suffer are the everyday folks living in Short Creek. Now, of course, Annie, Ben's, uh, Ben Bisslane's wife, would talk about it in, 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 um, in a report she did for the Chronicle in Arizona. She was, it said that she was 
sleeping outside, hoping to escape the summer heat when the raid happened. She shared a home with 40 others in 1953, and um, she was sleeping there at the age of 15 when officers with flashlights woke the children up, including Annie, and they rounded up all the men, and they removed about 260 children. And, of course, Annie Jessup found herself removed from her house into a nursing home, and then um, they converted the nursing home into some army barracks, and then they moved her to a Phoenix apartment about 370 miles away. So when everybody comes back to Short Creek, they don't have leaders. They don't have money. Government um, government officials are have court orders against some of the men from returning. And people who are already poor become more poor and they start to be starving. And so they have to decide what to do with this. Priesthood Council Leader Leroy Johnson would move to Phoenix, Arizona, since he couldn't move to Short Creek. And then he would move to Manti, Utah, with portions of his family. So he is technically supposed to be in charge of the UEP, the United Effort Plan, at this time. But since he can't be there, Carl Holm held the formal position of general manager. He also had help from Richard Jessup, who would be Annie's father. Richard Jessup was considered the recognized leader of the UEP and being the general manager for a time. The FLDS... They're not officially called the FLDS. They are developing debts, and they're hungry. And so over the next decade, they would have to grapple with how to do this. So this is what Ben Bisline is going to be talking about. In the summer of 1958, Marion Hammond returns to Short Creek, and he takes over the UEP as the leader. And he is determined to revitalize the project, and he does. He does this by implementing really aggressive ideas and insists upon greater discipline. This is really the first real crackdown where we see a lot of things start to change for the people. He did this under the understanding that he was helping the people and that it was a way to sort of draw together in a sort of Brigham Young sort of way and fix things. Marion Hammond would organize something called the work mission. Now, remember, since the days of Joseph Smith, people, leaders of the Mormon Restorationist movements would send men to preach the gospel for about two years, originally without purse or script, and then later financially be supported by their families. Hammond would call young fundamentalist men to do work missions for two years, and, and it was basically the idea that they would send them off to men to keep track of one another, to go work, and send all the money back to the UEP. And this actually becomes successful. Now, it's called Short Creek in 1953, but the raid really gives it a stigma, so they change it to Colorado City in 1963. And the colony is expanding. It's got over 500 inhabitants at this point. Now remember, the FLDS isn't concentrated. All of these uh, fundamentalists are living all over the place. Anywhere that Mormonism is touched, you have these people living. It's said that Leroy Johnson, um, people would complain that he would not give them a revelation and he is said to have said, quote, People have come to me and said, Brother Johnson, why don't you give us a new revelation? You have taught us all these things, and now we like to feel something new. Johnson was said to have said, quote, I wish to God I could give this people one-tenth of what he has revealed to me, but if I do, there are men on the stand who would want to take my life, end quote. He sort of channels Joseph Smith to that. By the 1970s, the UEP is really taking off. They have prosperity that they didn't even, that, that they had never had before. Um, it's said that Leroy Johnson said, quote, today we are in a better financial condition than we have ever been in this little community. 
Now, Hammond was responsible for a lot of this. There were new homes. They built a high school. They had electrical and telephone services, a culinary water system, a new highway from Hurricane Utah to, to the colony, completed with all these uh, new farming crops and things like that. And this is where we see the implementation of the one-man doctrine, where they sort of channel everything through one leader. This, of course, is going to cause some problems because up until this point, the Council of Friends is really working on a more consensus-based model. And the one-man doctrine sort of gives all the power to one man. And, of course, Rule and Jess later on becomes the big proponent of this, and he is one of the people on the council that's in favor of this one-man doctrine, meaning that you have to have one leader. So this this causes problems, understandably, and um, there's a split because of this struggle for power. It's, it's very complicated. I'm being very reductive. But basically, Hammond and another man, Timson, they, they go off and start Centennial Park, which they call the second ward, and Leroy Johnson stays with the help of the Jeffs, and they are the first ward. And this doesn't happen until around the 1980s. So this is this split was fairly new. These people were all living together. And so we're going to talk about the Centennial Park later. But when Ben is talking about Marion Hammond and Uncle Roy and all of those people, and Uncle, Uncle Rich, Uncle Rich would be his father-in-law, who was also considered the general manager of the UEP. So let's go back to Ben and see what he has to say. Tell us about Marion Hammond. Well, I thought he was a tyrant, but <laughs> why? He he was just strict. He just wanted he wanted to run things like a military. You know, he, of course, that didn't go over, over as good as Uncle Roy. And Uncle Roy was the, was the official leader. And Uncle Roy didn't go along with the military side of it, but he Marion called up what he called the missionary program when a when a boy reached. I don't know, 18, somewhere in there. They'd go serve two years on a work mission working for him. He'd send them out on jobs, and they'd have to give him their money or, or on public projects. I never did. I was I was always on a public, you know, public project. I never did go out. Maybe for just one or, one or two short periods did I actually go work and turn my money to them. But other than that, I was on the public projects. I was a good hard worker, and they, and those are the kind of people I like to keep at home working because they're the ones that got stuff done. The ones that wasn't worth a hoot, they'd send them out to work or send their money home. I don't know. I'm making things up. <laughs> Men, people that wanted to leave were free to leave any time, but they they left all assets. They could claim their property or claim anything. And, and, and there's a few people that did. They just sacrificed everything and left and went out and just started over. But I wasn't willing to do that because I'd build a home there. And, and uh, So why did you leave? Was there one thing or was it just a bunch of things piling up over the years? Well, those things piling up. I, I joined the church while I still lived out there. See, I was, one of the, I was a rare, rare squirrel, you know. And they, they, the LDS church allowed you to well, be baptized. They, they, the guy that done it, the area president, Niles Bayless, he didn't know that he wasn't supposed to do it. He told me, he says, I fully expected I was going to get excommunicated when they found out that I allowed you to be baptized. But they didn't. 
Instead, they changed the policy, and with the whoever the high council or whoever agreed, well, they would allow people to join the church and still stay there. And that was a good thing, because then we got a little bit of a sprinkling of the Mormons mixed among the the community. And did that help things, having oh, a little bit of that? It really did help things. It loosened it up because people didn't just hate each other then, you know, they were able to associate with each other. Now, the second ward, what we call the second ward, that old man Hammond and his group. Centennial Park. Yeah. They didn't. They they were different. They, they kept more under control of their their priesthood leadership, but boy, it's sure foggy on it right now. Well, that's okay. So, so you leave with your wife. You never become a polygamist. No, when did you start writing and and talking about the history? Gosh, I wish I could tell yeah. you pretty accurate date, but it would have been. I started keeping a journal at the time of the raid. And so I just decided to put that in a book form. Somebody encouraged me to do it. I don't remember who it was. So then I started trying to put a book together, which I did. It took me 10 years to put it together. And by that time then, I'd been baptized in the LDS. Was anybody else writing about it? Did they have a church historian? I mean, what was the history Fred like Jessup, back then? Fred Jessup was pretty much the, the church historian, but I got a copy of some of his stuff one time. And he was just—it was just his private life, so to speak. It didn't tell a story at all, you know. Yeah. Just—it just was—he was a really a, what's the word? Uh, he liked show, you know. He liked to make everybody realize that he was the whatever queen bee or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Him and Hammond split, see, and that's when they split Hilldale and Colorado City and made two towns. And Fred ruled Hilldale and Hammond ruled Colorado City. So, did they? Did the FLDS care about family history or genealogy or any of that, like the LDS Church does? You know, it's a little bit foggy there. It kind of seemed like their counsel was to not keep a record because enemies could get the record and use it against us in court and that. But but there were some people that did. They they wrote in code, you know, and, and some of them just quit keeping diaries when they told when they were told to. I didn't. I'd, I'd write in a journal, you know, maybe once a week or something like that. So you had you turned this into a book, and now you've you're out of the FLDS. When I found your work, I noticed that there were people that were really defensive of it, saying, you know, because you tell the truth about the FLDS church, but that some people don't like that. So did you have people? How did your family respond? Did you have critics? Well, there's one thing that I don't think the general public even realizes, and that was if it wasn't for me. The church could have never gone; would have never gone into Colorado City, but because of the mistake that that the area president made, Niles Bayless, he allowed me to be baptized when I was still a resident of Colorado City, and that kicked the lid off. 
then there's everybody want you know several people want to get baptized then at the church and they, they don't want to give up their homes because they'd be a little other if they moved out well they'd they forfeited everything but but by then they weren't kicking people out for being apostate in the FLDS, right? They they let you point. stay there? Yeah, not, not at that point, no. That so how long happen. did you stay there? Well, I'm trying to think who the baby was. The baby was probably about... I'm trying to think of what year we moved. <laughs> I can't even think of that. But you stayed for a few years, probably? Yeah, we did. We stayed there for three or four years at least. And... Uh, of course, I was tending, I was going to Moccasin, the church, my family. When I t- told that, Annie went to Hawaii, had a daughter that was living in Hawaii, working over there. And she wanted her mom to come and, and visit. So Annie went over and stayed there a year, took the three youngest children. Billy was the baby then. Well, he wasn't the baby. He was, still, he was in school, first grade or something, but he was our youngest child. And so she, she took Billy. Ida and Kirby with her when she went over there. Put them in school over there, and they were there for that first year. And uh, and then when she came home, we just like went and got married almost the day after she came home. <laughs> so you you left. Did how did Annie? How did Annie? Was she with you? She wanted to leave the FLDS and get baptized into the LDS well, I church? I telling that. She, when I asked her, I said, how would you feel if I joined the church when she came back from Hawaii? And she said, oh, I, I wouldn't have any objection against it. She said, I don't think I ever will, but I, if you want to, that's fine. And so she went to my baptism, and on the way home, she said, I want to get baptized. <laughs> and that's when, they, when, uh, when the first presidency found out that I'd been baptized. That's when, Bayless said he thought he was going to get excommunicated. <laughs> but so they made Annie wait a year before she could be baptized. Okay, and some people ask me when I talk about this research why why people that leave the FLDS would want to join a Mormon church after that. Oh, entirely different churches. You know, wouldn't even hardly think they're the same, same church. It's just like night and day. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, the church is freedom and... Uh, Practice your what you believe, and and uh, the the church involves people, involves everybody, tries to get them in organizations and missionary programs and all that. The FLDS, they have a ruler and he's the boss, and the rest of you just toe the mark. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not the same sort of community, oh, no, and no, it's yeah, not the same at all. Were there good things about the way that it was done there in the FLDS? The only good thing was that we were isolated from the corruption of the <laughs> It's important to note that Benjamin Bisline is a very faithful Latter-day Saint. He credits the church for being freedom, for being the thing that liberated him from this community that was sick. And he really thinks that if more FLDS people joined the LDS church, they would be happy. To him, it is less about doctrine than it is about dogma. The LDS church has a lot more openness, a lot more freedom, and Ben still carries a lot of traditional FLDS ideas. He believes in polygamy. He believes in a lot of the doctrines that were taught to him as an FLDS boy. 
I think for him, the reasons why the FLDS were so troubling had to do with the practices and behaviors, not the beliefs. And when I asked Ben, Ben would often refer to Babylon or the corruption of the world. I asked him what he meant by that, and this is what he said. You know, the kids, when I was learning to fly, I had to go, I drove up Cedar City on Saturday. I was cutting timber working out on the mountain. And I'd drive up Cedar City on Saturday to do a flying lesson. And, and I had my boy, a little boy with me. He's, oh, I don't think he'd started school yet, four or five years old. And I was talking to one of the guys up there that was learning to fly at the same time. And, and he was smoking. And John kept looking at him and looking at him. And finally he said, Dad, what's that he's blowing on? <laughs> and he's, he's, uh, John's six, seven, eight years old. I mean, you know. And the, the poor guy, he was embarrassed as could be. And he stuck stuff that out. Oh, I got to get it with that, you know. I tried to see his mind. I said, no, you know, you don't have to change for us. But... <laughs> That's how naive, how, how we, my kids were raised. Cause nobody in shark, if they did smoke, they didn't all in private, which some of them did. So you, you wrote your book. You, you were probably the only one writing about this at the time and writing well, the history. Geraldine was, she was known, she wrote some plays and operated and things. She was quite talented. And Fred appointed her to write the history. And, and she was telling me later, telling me about it. She says, he'd appoint me and I'd go write something, take it back and read to him. Then he'd, he'd change it where I'd been, where I was wrong, you know, but do it like he wanted, not like I wanted. And she said, after a couple of times, I, I didn't, you know, no way I could write a book that way. So she just didn't do it. And yes, that I, there was people that kept their journals. Well, Sorry. What did I do? No, you just bunked me. It's okay. Oh, yeah. There was people that kept their journals, but then that, when Hammond took over, he told him to quit keeping journals because he's afraid that the enemies would get him and use them as evidence against us. And some of those guys, young men like myself, they they liked that keeping journal stuff, and and they they actually quit. They didn't like it, but they did quit keeping the journal. I never did. I kept, I didn't keep a whole very detailed journal not once a week or something. I'd write in it, but at least I kept note of what happened. So when I wrote the book, then I could go back and. So when you were out, things started to change, and then uh, Rulin becomes the leader. Do you want to talk about what you thought about watching that out play out as an outsider? I really wasn't an outsider when Rulin took over. I was, I was in. I was one of the, going to their. They had what they called the school of the prophets, and there was a certain number of men that were invited to attend that a Saturday night, once a month Saturday night class, and there was about. 25 men or something chosen from the community that attended that school. I was the one that was invited, even though I didn't have but the one why. And one of the requirements was that you had more, that you would live, have more than one life to be a member of that class. And, and so when they invited me into the class, I went to Annie's father. He was one of the high priest apostles, one of the leaders. And I said, you made me promise you that I'd live for a marriage if you let me marry your daughter. Now, what do you want me to do? We don't, we can't, we're told not to go court. We're told that we'll, to, we'll be appointed who to marry. And then he, he let me off the hook then. He said, no, he said, you do, you do what they want now. Don't go court. And 
So and was that, Rulin in charge by that point? No, uh, Leroy was in charge. So where were you when Rulin was put in charge? I was right there in the middle of it when Rulin took over. Well, that was when they, well, they, they moved Fred, took Fred, they didn't move him, they kidnapped him, took him. <laughs> Nobody ever saw him again. Really? <laughs> I I didn't know that story. <laughs> Well, some of the Barlows, see, there's the Cabarlo clique that pretty much was running the things until, until, uh, till Rulin took over when, when Uncle Roy died and, and it was all down on Rulin only. He was the only high priest apostle left. Then things changed and his son started running things and he was just almost senile, Rulin, anyway. I, I don't know how, I don't think he was totally senile, but he, he certainly wasn't in control. He was, he was suffering from old age and all that stuff. There are rumors that Warren was poisoning him. Do you believe any of those no, rumors? No, no, I don't. I don't believe it. Now I've I've been wrong. Some of my beliefs, what I thought, I found out later I was wrong. But I don't believe that. He didn't need to. Now, when you say poison, uh, I think he. He had his alcohol, you know. He was, a, I think, he was an alcoholic. Really was, and so that's that's probably enough, you know. Just so, get drunk all the time. <laughs> did you like Rulin as a leader? Did you at think at first he... I did? At first I liked him because his talks were short and sweet. <laughs> right, twenty minutes was outside. Man Hammond, old Man Hammond, had talked for two hours. And I'm not kidding. He get up to church and talk for two hours. Our churches. Meetings that last for three or four hours. Everybody, gosh darn, I just hated him. He just repeated himself, you know, over and over. And that's hard with little kids too. Well, I was, I was, I was married. I mean, I was at that time when Hammond took over. So Rulin was in charge, and you were still in. Did you leave before or after Warren took over? Well, I'm going to say after he took over, but because I was still part of the group when he was when he was the leader, except that when he started running things, that was probably the, what what cut the mustard for me. I said, "No more of this," you know. He he's nobody, and they they and that's when they got Fred. Fred made the statement to some of the Barlows, who was his clique, you know, and he said, "When when when Warren started doing crap." I heard that Fred made the statement to some of his, his clique that, well, we, we can't stand for this. He said, I'm going to move in and take over. Well, he had spies in his network, and they run right to Warren, and that's when Warren kidnapped him and took him to, well, they went to Mexico first. Nobody knew where he was. He went to Mexico looking for him, couldn't find him, found out he'd gone back to Mesa area or somewhere, and he went back there, and they couldn't find him, and they found out he didn't uh, Warren had bought a place up in Colorado, and he was up there, and they wouldn't allow anybody in, you know, and all a bunch of stuff. And nobody just saw him until until he died. They, they, he he just decided that he just he just quit eating. He just starved himself to death. He wasn't going to put up. He just give up. And they put him in the nursing home, and he, and he died. And then there was no one to threaten Warren's claim yeah, to power. Right. Well, if, and so. It's it's a weird thing to me. I don't know why they come to me. The state, well, whoever the law was, 
he was in the nursing home. I had him in the, in the nursing home over in in Colorado. Let's see. Wait a minute. What's the name of the town? Uh, down from Denver. Is it Mountain Home? What's what's the? There's kind of a community there. It's kind of a resort community. And they bought a had a place there, and that's where he was. Nobody knew where he was. That is the general people didn't know where he was. And when he died, then the state official. A state official came to me. I'd written the book, and maybe that's why, but told me that, that Fred had died. He wanted to be advised of what, what I, I thought the thing for him to do was. I didn't want Warren's outfit to go to the people and say Fred's died. I wanted that to come from the state. Yeah. And I said, don't tell anybody for a couple of days, because uh, then the the state will, they'll have their meeting with the, whoever the leaders were at the time, and they'll, and they'll spill the beans in. So I was the first one that knew it, and then after that it was the, it was the church LDS people that knew it, or knew that he died rather than. The thing I don't understand is Warren, as an outsider, he seems... He's not good-looking. He doesn't seem dynamic or very articulate. Why did Warren have so much power? Well, he was Ruland's son. Ruland was the leader. All but Ruland had other sons. Yeah, but Warren, he was his favorite. He'd pick... Warren's mother, Marilyn Steed, was... Everybody said she was his favorite wife. And, and Warren, Warren just got in there, just wormed his way in, took care of him, you know, and taking things and just lived at his... Back and call and just I don't know he just he just won him over so he made Warren the give him the power and did do are there people in the community that genuinely love Warren or do they mostly fear him? I think they mostly feared him. Yeah. So there's not I mean because in the LDS church we kind of have a soft spot for our leaders and yeah. and a love for them. Was it the same sort of culture uh, there? Well, it was at first, but not at this point, no. People didn't like Warren. He was a tyrant. But they believed he spoke for God. They believed Ruland did, and they believed he was... Speaking through Ruland. Yeah, he was speaking to what Ruland wanted him to do. When did it change? When did they stop believing that, and they started just listening to Warren? Or do they still when, believe when that... Ruland, when uh, Fred died. When Fred died, then they... See, there was people that still had contact with Fred, but... But the general public didn't know where he was, and they had, like some of the Barlows, you know, they they still had contact with him undercover, to where Warren bunch didn't know about, and they'd kind of make reports back. But I don't know for sure because I wasn't, I was out of it, so to speak. Then I was in a member of the church and living high riding, handsome, you know, happy, and I'd been, I was on the stake high council, you know, and. In the in the Kaibab Steak in Kanab, and I was a church. I was an LDS person. I wasn't. I really wasn't paying too much attention to what was happening there because I just didn't care anymore. So, um, what can you talk to things happening there now? Do you follow what's going on now, or oh, are you kind just... of vaguely only? It's uh, they've they've split up into several little splinter groups, and. Uh, of course, the Timpsons, Johnny Timpson, he's the main one. 
and the, and the the people that still more or less believe what we were taught and all that are, are with are following Johnny Timpson. But he's pretty much granted them their freedom into where where they can live, what they do, and, and he he's one of those sanctions their marriages and that sort of thing. There are other people, it's one or two that this that have one leader, one two people following one leader and things like that. They have their own little groups and where we've got the keys, you know, where where are the priests? It's just one person. <laughs> There's two or three little groups like that. I don't know. It's it's but but you were able to get out, live a good life, be an LDS member, just enjoy life and raise your kids in that. What about your family, the rest of your family? Well, I never did go with the church. I never had any. I had one daughter-in-law that, that was LDS, that was uh, active LDS. And her husband, he was going to join he, but he was doing it to please her, and before before they was going to baptize him, well, he was, I was talking to him, and I said, I said, Jasper, if you don't feel good about this, don't do it, because it'll turn to crap on you if you do. And so he took me my word and didn't do it. He didn't get baptized into the church. He allowed his family to go. She was, she was already a member, you know, she, and allowed his kids, all of his kids were baptized in the church. He had six kids. And uh, and they 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 get along good. They live a happy life. And he he lives one side of the spectrum, and she lives the other. Except that they're they're a family. They live as a family. And she she's laid down some strict rules for her. You can't come home for him. You can't come home drunk and things like that. Yeah. Which is good. But but the FLDS has changed their word of wisdom, right? They don't drink right now. You don't. I I don't think so. Depends on who you are. <laughs> <laughs> There's never a time when they, their leaders didn't drink. Tell it. What do you think about polygamy now? I have nothing against it if that's what people want. That's if that's. A, I think it just needs to be left entirely up to the people that want it. If they want to live it, they should be able to. If they want, if they don't, they should be forced into it. What about appointed marriages? Well, at the time that was good because it. It was just a free for all, and you had every calm Nick and Harry going to every girl that would start growing. <laughs> Can I say something? <laughs> What's the word? Vulgar, but <laughs> breasts start to swell, and then there's after by a revelation. You're supposed to marry me. You're Twelve years old, or something, wow. you know? and they, and they had to put a stop to that. They just had to, and so then that's when they said, "Well, we'll tell you who to marry." That was old man Hammond's philosophy. And I was all for it. I thought it was a good thing. Because it took all that other crap yeah, off the boards. He, he he favored people. He, his own sons, of course, got the, got the favorite women and all that stuff. But, but they took it too far. Uh, sure, absolutely. Anybody, any authority, what does it say? It's total authority is absolute or something. I don't remember the saying now, but. Once you get the power, then you can do whatever you want. Well, there's no, there's no restrictions. You know, you're gonna just do what you want, and that's what happened with Warren. I understand that Warren was in the homosexual crap. Now I don't know how true it is, but I believe it. I believe it's true, and the people that was telling me about it, because he's weird. He's a weird son of a bee. Yeah. He could be into anything. Sounds like he was. 
I think that they've done away with people that, that disappeared. Nobody knows where they are. Yeah, did they teach blood atonement? Not outright. In open, no. They talked about it, but they just said someday, you know, but their blood atonement, if they somebody was giving them trouble, they would send them to get rid of them, I guess. I don't really know how much that happened. But, but there were rumors. Yeah, the people that were getting rid of other people were the LeBarons. The barons claimed they were supposed to be the leaders, and they went to the to the some of the leaders of the Jeffs group, different groups. A U B. You're supposed to follow us, and if you don't, then we'll kill you. And they did. They did, yeah. So, tell me why why your book is important. I know why I think your book is important, but why is this history important for well, us? Well, I tried to be as honest and unbiased as I could be right now. And I think it's a, a true story, true as near as you're going to find anywhere. Now, there's no doubt about it. I, you know, I, I had to put some of my personal stuff in there that may not be accurate because of the way I saw things. But it's as accurate a record as any there is that you can find. And I'm still alive, and if anybody has any questions, they can come to me and ask me about different things, and I can... You would take visitors? Oh, absolutely. I take them all the time. I've taken them all the time. I haven't for a while, because since I'm in here, you know, it's it's a little bit awkward and that, but I do, just like you, sure. Yeah. You yeah. ask to come see me, sure, I'll talk to you. Yeah, you've my been memory, great. Pardon? You've been great. Thank you so my, much. My memory's leaving me. I'm having a hard time re remembering things, dates especially, but timeline, yeah. when things happen. I think you're doing great. I think it's... It should have happened two years sooner than it did when I still had a little bit of my memory left. Yeah, I apologize for that. I I just I feel like you're the only one that's really written this history, and FLDS people don't know their history. Well, that's true. They don't know it. They, they say, I'm a liar. They say, what I've written is not true. What do they think you've lied about? I can't think of any specific thing, but just anything that contradicts what, what their leaders tell them, well, that's then I've lied. Yeah. Yeah, is that hard for you? No, I don't give a hoot. It's out there. You can take it or leave it. I don't care. It's hard to change your your beliefs. I mean, you you cling and cling and cling. You hope you're right. You hope you're right. That's the way I was. I hoped I was right. I hoped I was right. But I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't have a a firm dying testimony that the plagues were true. You know, where the in fact it got weaker and weaker all the time until I got studied some of the history. Read that book that Max Anderson. Now Max Anderson book's a good book. What's it called? Polygamy, Fiction and Fact? I haven't, I haven't heard of it. I'll check it out. It's a good book. I, I suggest you get it and read it. Because he came to me, he done a lot of research historically. He's not accurate in every in every detail, but then he's, he's as close as anybody's ever gotten to it. So it's, it's a good book. Did I think that, that I deal with a lot of LDS people who find out the church history of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And it's really hard for them, especially because LDS were taught that polygamy is... I mean, we're not taught very much about it, so when they find out Joseph is a polygamist, that was hard. Did you have? Did you experience anything like that? Well, no, because I grew up believing it was true, and we, should, we were supposed to live it. So that wasn't a problem? No, that wasn't a problem. What well, advice like, would you give to people that excuse struggle? Excuse me, start, start over. What advice would you give to LDS people who struggle right now with that? 
to stay with the church. Forget the pigs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, stay with the church. That's that's where it's at. Yeah, um, I don't think the FLDS would take us right now. Do they? Are no, they... they don't. They the FLDS is not a, a an organization like the church. They're just a few scattered people. They've adopted that name, but but they're not. They're no. There's some people that have organized uh, trusts and things like that, and they go under the names of their trust. But there, there's no church organization, uh, you know, publicly recorded or anything like that. What advice would you give to people leaving the FLDS right now? Get into the church as quick as you can. If you believe, if you believe that in Mormonism. Completely abandon the polygamous stuff and just and get with the church, leader of the church, the president of the church, as quick as you can. How come? Because they teach the truth. The church today is teaching the truth as far as they go. They, you know, some of the history, they, they're vague on it, but if you get... They're doing better. If you, if you pin them right down, they've got to admit that Joseph Smith had more than one wife and, and all this. And at the time there, they wouldn't even admit that. Some of them, you know, some of the leaders. And would you encourage people everywhere to write down their history like you did? Uh, I don't know if I'd encourage everyone, because a lot of people don't have the, the ability and the yeah. talent and all that, but I would encourage anyone that has going to leave a posterity to get something written down so their posterity knows what they went through. Yeah, I would encourage people to keep journals and, and that sort of thing. We were encouraged to keep journals at first, and that's when I started keeping a journal. Do you do you like doing history? Do you enjoy that? My history, what I've written. Yeah. I think I've done a fairly fair job at it. Yes, I think that I've done about as fair as could be done. Now I admit the prejudice when I start talking about Fred Jessup, and I'll admit this right out: prejudice is there because I didn't like him. And I don't know if I can, what I say about Fred, if he can take it to the bank or not. You know, it's because it's my personal feelings with him. I didn't like him. I liked him at first when I was a young man. Yeah. But then when he started picking on, you know, point, he'd, he'd choose, uh, uh oh. Oh, you're okay. Just my phone. He would pick different ones for click, you know, and that's who, who he kept with him and the rest of it. We didn't even know what was going on. We just, we just there for, Gunfire, or whatever you want to say, you know. As long as we gave him our money, well, yeah, he'd, but he'd like it. But if we didn't give him any money, then we we were cut off. And then it didn't take me long to realize that. So I quit giving him giving him the money. When I turned money in, I gave it to, to Uncle Roy. I'd go right straight to Uncle Roy and give it to him. Well, until, until he died, and then I quit giving him money. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to say about your life or about the FLDS? Well, volume, volume, but what, what does people want to hear? What? I don't know. Just, it's, it's, I mean, you've lived it. We we just tell the history in these stories, but you've lived it. So. Cracker was after sensation, and he put a bunch of crap in there that was absolutely false. <laughs> and he's he's off base. He was for sensation. He wanted to sell books. Yeah. And he didn't grow up in any of it no, either. No, Krakauer's a good author. I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. Yeah. His first book I wrote, I really enjoyed it. It was called Into Thin Air. Have you ever read that? Yeah, I have. 
I really enjoyed that. He's a good writer. He's a good, uh, interesting to read. But I can't read his polygamy stuff because I know he's not telling the truth. Well, I've tried to read it. But... What What is the truth? Is the truth that it's complicated? <laughs> truth is truth. Is truth wherever found, be it on foreign or native ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I've been surprised with doing this story is I, it's so complicated. And uh-huh. with every group, it's different. And with every group, it's the same in some ways, too. Yeah. Well, they all believe in polygamy, and that's that's the, that's, that's the catalyst. You know, that's what draws them in, draws people in polygamy. And he got great, you know, have a bunch of women. It's not. Oh, I, I'm not going to say it's not. I mean, there's people. I know people that have lived pro marriage that have done a fairly good job, treat their women all fair. How do you think the women feel? Most of them hate it. Yeah. Most of them don't like it at all. Because every man has a favorite, and there's no way he can hide it. He just can't do it. That's hard for the men, too. I've got to stop thinking. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. We're about done, so... When it started. (laughs) (laughs) Ronnie Darter has tried to be as fair as he can be with his family and his wife. He didn't... At least on the surface, he didn't... You couldn't tell if he had a favorite wife or not. They all do. Yeah. And he, he didn't have a wife that he'd go sleep with every night. If the wife wanted to get pregnant or something, then he'd make, make, he'd make the decision and then he'd go sleep with her until she got pregnant and that was it. They, they, they didn't. Can I be crude? Anybody in here? No, you're fine. He didn't leave him for fun. <laughs> really? Yeah, I've always been curious. No one, no one ever likes to talk about that that aspect of it. At least they never admit it. Well, I think you've done a, a an incredible service to history and oh, to thanks. many, many people. Thanks. It's not going to just help me; it's going to help many, and it has helped many, many, many people. Yeah, I hope so. That's my whole purpose: is try and get put close to the truth as we could out there. At this point in our interview, Barbara had arrived and we had a pleasant conversation where Ben talked about some private things that we're not going to publish, but he's a wonderful man and Barbara and I are going to go back and hopefully interview Annie as well because like I've mentioned before, women's voices, especially in this fundamentalist period, are noticeably absent. I've tried to include them wherever possible and whoever will talk to me, but there are so many cultural barriers that sort of prevent that from happening. But we are really lucky to have a historian like Ben Bestline be willing to talk to us. And so I want to honor him and his legacy and his work and his courage in, in writing down what he, he saw. I think that that's something inspirational for all of us. So once again, everyone, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Year of Polygamy series. Thank you for those who have become a subscriber. I would encourage everyone to subscribe if you enjoy this work and projects that we will be doing on the podcast in the future. And thanks again for listening.